This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 816, A Conversation with Michael Lark. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 816, uh, our conversation with Michael Lark. Uh, before you go listen to this episode, it might actually be helpful in some ways to set the stage for this interview by instead uh, listening to episode 808, which is my conversation with Stefano Gariano, uh, who uh, is an inker. Well, he also was a penciler, but now he's more well-known as an inker. Uh, and specifically, he inked Michael Lark working on Gotham Central and on Daredevil. And so we talk a little bit about uh, you know how he became an inker and working over Michael. It's kind of a nice kind of setup for this interview where I actually get to talk with Michael directly to kind of talk about his own path in comics, uh, artistically speaking. Uh, and it goes into a lot of interesting places. Uh, we talk about, you know, creator rights, um, how he feels about it, working on something that's creator-owned. We don't go a lot into Lazarus because we are going to uh, reconvene with Michael relatively soon to kind of go through Lazarus and what that process has been like working on that book with Greg Rucka. Uh, but this is a lot more of uh, of the, I guess, the younger, the younger Michael Lark, uh, talking about Gotham Central and Daredevil, what it was like working on those projects, uh, kind of, you know, ending his kind of run at DC, going over to Marvel, and then how that eventually kind of ends and leads him into the creator-owned space, working with Greg on uh, on Lazarus uh, with Image. So it's really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Michael is, he was so giving up his time and uh, very open about uh, his journeys uh, and what he's done in comics and again how he feels about certain things about creator rights and how marketing works and how you know companies treat talent uh, so I thought it was really an engaging interview and I, I'm really excited to present it because uh, I thought it was a really interesting uh, perspective to take and just to hear his stories about how he feels about certain things uh, and again some of the comments I make come from the interview with Stefano uh, so again it's a nice primer to get ready for this one that's episode 808 back from September 12th and uh, without further ado I will get into the episode in just a second uh, but just some housekeeping first you can email me at comic shenanigans at gmail.com rate and review the show on apple I, apple Podcasts. listen to us on apple Podcasts, and listen to us on apple Podcasts and stitcher uh, i'm used to saying itunes and so i'm all thrown off when i try to not say itunes and use apple Podcasts instead it just feels so unnatural uh but uh yeah please uh drop me a line upcoming episodes we're working on having eric and julia leewald back on the show they are the creator well uh, eric and julia worked extensively on the X-Men animated series. Eric was the showrunner. And they now have a new uh, The Art of the X-Men Animated Series art book. Uh, it's a phenomenal book. It's really amazing. Uh, great art, great stories in it. It's a great kind of companion slash sequel to the previously on X-Men, which was their book from uh, what, three or four years ago. Which might have been five years ago. Um, so that was a, a lot, that'll be a lot of fun once we're able to get them back on the show. So uh, definitely some good stuff coming up in the future episodes. But uh, And again, as I said, we're going to have Michael Lark back for another conversation to talk specifically about Lazarus. Anyways, Without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Michael Lark. Michael, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I am great, thank you. Well, it's really exciting to have you on. Um, we recently talked with one of your collaborator, collaborators, uh, Stefano Agariano, and he had uh, like a lot of amazing th- things to say about working over you, so it's exciting to now have you on the show as well. 
Oh, thank you. I'm I'm excited to be here, and uh, you know the the feeling was mutual with Stefano. If I if I ever needed an anchor again, uh, Stefano would be the only person I would even consider. So high praise. Oh yeah. Well, you know it's that's like it's like playing in a band. You can't just throw any group of musicians together and expect them to make good music. Hmm. You know, it, it, you got to have a feel for each other and stuff. And um, you know, I realize I'm probably already getting ahead of, us, of ourselves by saying this, but, you know, I, when I needed an anchor on Gotham Central, um, Ed Brubaker recommended Stefano because they had known each other from way back. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the first page I did for him, he needed to get on it and do, like, um, do a sample for it so we could figure out if it worked, but there was one panel I wasn't sure about. And I just kind of roughed in what I was going to do there, and I said, I'll pencil this one tomorrow, and I'll send it to you. Um, but here's the rest of the page. And I got back the next morning, the full page inked with that panel that I had just kind of roughed in, except it was exactly like I had planned to do it. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, was like, it was like, wow, okay, this guy's got the job. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, Stefano's just been able to read my mind ever since then. I, I'm, I'm sure I can't be easy to work with, and, uh, and I've had other inkers who absolutely butchered my work, so that was... Uh, He's he's amazing. Absolutely, yes. But before we, I guess, before we get to that era and and beyond, um, I always like to kind of yeah. go back and kind of understand when comics kind of first entered your your sphere as as a, as if they were as a kid or how they first kind of became part of your life. Um, it was in college for me. I actually didn't grow up reading comics. Um, I don't know why, but I just <laughs> did. And um, I was more of a Star Wars nerd when when. You know, like, like you know, around that ten years of age is when a lot of you know young boys, especially, get into comics. Um, and for me, Star Wars had just come out, and that was just like everything: spaceships and science fiction. That was just like everything. <laughs> um, so it was in college for me. I, uh, you know, I I knew a guy who was in the manga, and went to the comic book store with him, and um, you know, just tagging along. And I was looking around, and this was during the 80s when there was a lot of... I mean, you know, prior to this, it seemed like everything looked pretty much exactly the same to me, at least, as, you know, growing up. But, like, you know, there was there were house styles. Mm-hmm. You know, a house style was common. And, um, you know, there were a lot of black and white independent comics that started coming out in the 80s that just had really unique and individual art styles. And... Um, I guess I was cocky enough at the time to be like, well, I can actually draw like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if I don't have to draw a house style, I could actually do this. And um, so I kind of started getting interested and, um, you know, I, I, I think I probably started drawing and trying to write comics before I really read many of them. I mean, it was just, you know... It, I mean, I read enough to know a little bit about the language of, you know, how, you know, narration and dialogue balloons and, mm-hmm. you know, panel stuff like that. But I hadn't really, I mean, com- comparable to most people who were breaking into the business, I had not read very many comics at all. It's, it's interesting. Like, I'm curious, like, how did that work in your either like in your favor or kind of against you when you were first kind of trying to break in because it was not something you had grown up with and not a language that you were as intuitive with for as long? Well, 
I guess I can't say it worked against me because here I am. (laughs) Later, I'm still doing this for a living. And I think that, I think in some respects, I just look back at it now and I think that I was both incredibly naive and incredibly cocky to think I could do it. Um, And thank God for youth, you know, because we... (laughs) are like that some of us sometimes where I was just like yeah why can't I do this where if I think that if I'd been more brought up in comics and kind of revered them um, I probably would have been a little more shy about it Hmm. you know um, I I don't think I would have been as cocky I would have known all the things I was doing wrong I guess there is that there is a kind of a a power sometimes in the ignorance of youth um, that kind of ends up working out more often than maybe sometimes we realize because we don't know any better, but like I, I, I've looked back at some of the you know jobs I've had in the past, and I remember there was one job I interviewed for at one point, and I, I, I kind of rebuffed, I rebuffed it because I felt like, well, that's not where I should be starting. I'm a university graduate. Like, that meant something. <laughs> but like, arrogance of youth, and you know, because I, I didn't end up taking that job because of this arrogant feeling, which I, you know, I'm embarrassed by it now, but it led me where I needed to be. So it's interesting how some Sometimes that kind of works in our favor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I try not to... I, I don't... How can I put this? I don't really have any regrets for any of the choices I've made. Um, but I also can see, like, oh, gosh, can't believe I made that decision. You know? <laughs> there's, uh, there's a lot of them like that. I mean, it's not necessarily a regret as much as, like fifty year old me looking back at twenty year old me going, Boy, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? So what what like what eventually like when 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 you're when you kind of more emerge, like you're working on when you're working on Shade the Changing Man and Terminal City in the nineties, like what what kind of leads up to you getting in front of DC Comics and actually them taking a shot on you? Um I drew my first you know, I've done a couple of little, like, you know, we used to call them Ashcan comics. Mm, yeah. Call them that, you know, um, I've done a few of those that I, you know, kind of handed out at conventions and stuff. And I finally sat down and said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this new thing and I'm going to really try to make it a real comic. And um, I was, you know, like maybe four or six pages into it and I showed it to, um, I showed it to Ted McKeever at a, uh, at a convention here in Dallas um, and at the time, he was one of my favorite artists, and he still is, but he was, you know, he's pretty hot at that point, too, and he was really encouraging, but the first thing he said to me is, finish it. He said, nobody's even going to take a look at it, because why should they take a chance on you if they don't think you're going to finish? Hmm. And so, I finished the first issue of it, and shopped it around, and uh, got the whole story, but I, I ended up getting, um, Caliber Press to publish it. Gary Reed at Caliber Press agreed to publish it. And, you know, again, super naive. had no idea what I was doing. I was also trying to write it, and I am the world's worst writer. I'm not even going to tell you the title of it because I don't want people to look it up. They can look it up if they want, but I'm not going to encourage it. Um, <laughs> I find it incredibly embarrassing. It's, it's, ugh. Anyway, um, and I'm not just being hard on myself on that. I can be, I know when I'm being hard on myself and this is not that. This is, I was an awful writer. Um, did you, did you know that at the time? Like as you were doing it, you're like, I don't know about this. Yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs> but I, mean, I, I, there, I didn't have any other choice at the time. 
so, um, so yeah, that got published, and I guess it got seen by uh, Dean Motter, uh, and and I was at the time I was super heavily influenced by Mr. X, and Dean recognized it right off, and um, he had started working for a company that basically just licensed properties. Uh, to do comics of them and then turn around and sell the comics to the, you know, whoever would publish it. Um, and they were doing a series of Raymond Chandler adaptations, uh, you know, 1940s and 50s detective novels. And um, I guess they were doing short stories, but they asked me to do the one novel that was going to be in the series. And um, so that became like my first full-time comics gig. Um, was adapting that that novel, The Little Sister, by Raymond Chandler, into a comic, and it. I think eventually it ended up getting published by Scholastic. Um, but at the time that I had just finished it, like they hadn't even secured a publishing deal for it, but the, their option was about to run out, and they had to publish something to keep a hold of it, and so they just like. They Xeroxed my comic in black and white and then bound it in a hardbound cover, <laughs> like cool designed end papers and stuff. I made 110 of those and sold them. And, uh, you know, so that was my first big published thing. Um, and so then, you know, of course, Dean went over to, he ended up working at DC and also developing uh, Terminal City. And uh, one day, you know, I had been. I had been banging on the doors at Vertigo for so long, um, you know, for about two years, I guess, at that point. I'd been showing, maybe longer, you know, two to four years I'd been, I'd been banging on the door at Vertigo ever since they started, trying to get them to look at my work. And I always kept getting the same thing, which is, well, you know, it looks good, but we don't have anything for you right now. And um, so, yeah, being had lunch one day with Shelly Baum, the editor, and, you know, was pitching this idea to her, and she said, well, who do you have in mind for the artist? And he gave her my name, and that afternoon, she called me, um, and this was back in the days of fax machines, faxed me a couple pages of script uh, of Shave the Changing Man, and said, draw me these two pages, let's see how they look. And so I did that like the next day and I've been working full-time in comics ever since. Wow. Prior to that, I still had a day job. Um, you know, and so that way, you know, it's like, it really is who you know sometimes. You know, um, you know, had Dean not seen my work and recognized that I was influenced by him and seen that we had a lot of the same interests, um, you know, who knows if I ever would have broken in. Hmm. So I'm curious, what, what was the day job you were working at that point? Oh, God, I was doing um, advertising art. Hmm. Um, worked for a, for a company that owned a chain of nurseries and did their newspaper advertisements for them. Uh, but we had, we had a little art team of like four people. And, you know, again, back in the old days, you know, we were using... It was before you did that stuff on computers. It was all done with stack cameras and had to, when you did type, you had to like print it out on these things and we had to change the chemicals in this giant printer that we used for it. It was like these cancer causing chemicals. It was awful. <laughs> 
what was it like to, I mean, obviously it would have been nice to, it must have felt good to be like, no, I'm leaving this job to, you know, pursue this dream of, of working in comics. But was it also kind of nerve wracking to finally kind of say, I'm done with the day job. I'm going to stick to this and I'm hoping that this will be sufficient. Well, we go back to what we were talking about earlier about being naive. <laughs> I mean, you, know, um, you know, now that I think about it, I think I got things a little mixed up. It was actually the I had that job. I quit when I started doing the Raymond Chandler adaptation. I had gone. What I had done was I had quit my job for that, and I knew that that was going to be like a year long project. And my assumption, foolishly, was that they would give me more work as soon as I was done with that. Hmm. I don't know why I thought that, you know, in retrospect, but I did. Um, so, yeah, that's, you know, and then once I quit that job, you know, when I got the, when I was able to dive off and take the plunge with DC, it was easier. It was an easy, much easier decision. So once you're working at DC and, and like working on a Vertigo book, like how are you feeling at that point? Like I've made it, I've done this, like I'm, I'm in the industry now, I'm a regular guy. Like, and, and, and what were you thinking at that point on, on what you'd want to kind of do next? Were you thinking that, you know, I want to segue into kind of the mainstream DC books or were you like, no, I like Vertigo. Vertigo is kind of where I belong. Yeah. The second one. Hmm. Um, you know, but you know, cause again, I can't draw, I didn't, I never liked superheroes. I still don't like superheroes. <laughs> I love superhero books, but I don't like drawing them really. Um, Lazarus is as close as I'd want to come to Lazarus or Gotham Central, hmm. or as close as I'd want to come to to draw on a superhero book on the regular. Daredevil was fun because working with Ed was fun, and um, I really enjoyed what Bendis and Alex Malev had done right before we got on that book. So it was fun to kind of take over from them. Hmm. But that lost its shine pretty quickly for me. And I really, I mean, except for some spotty things here and there at Marvel after I finished there, though, well, I really haven't gone back to superheroes at all. Hmm. And I really don't intend to. I don't want to. Hmm. Um, you know, they they have their fun for me, but it, I didn't grow up with that. It doesn't have any nostalgia value. Mm-hmm. Like, like a lot of people. Now, Star Wars would be different. I'd draw anything with Star Wars in it for, that, <laughs> for the nostalgia value and for that 10-year-old kid in me to get to play. Yeah. But I didn't have that 10-year-old kid who wanted to play with superheroes. Mm. So I'm curious, and I, I'm jumping ahead, but I'm curious, like, given that Alex Malev was doing the art on Daredevil before you took over and seeing, like, kind of his style, which is, again, not your most, most traditional kind of superhero style, did that maybe make it easier to say, I'm going to take over that book because it wasn't coming already from a place that was more typical superheroes. Obviously working with, oh, Ed, yeah. with Ed would have been, you know, a big part of it too, but also, you know, just the fact that you maybe you felt more comfortable because you didn't feel like you had to immediately follow a more traditional style. And it's something that was much more closer to something that you would do. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Alex and I have a lot of the same influences. Um, Alex, in my opinion, is a much better artist. Um, but he's, I mean, he's just amazing to me. I, yeah, he, Alex is one of those people that, like, I, I was at a convention with him one time uh, in Europe, and he, we were watching somebody else speak. Or I had just walked in and met him, and somebody else was speaking that he knew, and I had my sketchbook, and I had uh, this new brush pen I bought. And Alex was looking at it, and he's like, oh, that's cool, can I try it out? Um, I've saved those sketchbook pages. Oh, really? And just out my brush pen 
in that sketchbook. They're beautiful drawings. They're absolutely gorgeous. And all he was doing was seeing what that brush pen would do. And it was absolutely gorgeous drawings. And I just saved them for my own, for, for me, you know, because they're beautiful. Um, yeah, but anyway, back to your question. Um, yeah, it definitely made it easier um, to have them kind of lay the foundation they laid. But, but Daredevil was always kind of had the, the quirky people come in. Like, you know, Frank Miller and, and David Mazzucchelli both had kind of laid a foundation for slightly quirky artwork for Daredevil. So it kind of fit. Plus, we were riding pretty high on Gotham Central at the time. We, we were really, really proud of Gotham Central. Um, and DC did not share, at the time, did not share our, our love of that book. And basically put me... Well, anyway, we won't get into that right now. But uh, I was really excited and feeling really... I was kind of feeling my chops at the time, feeling my oats at the time. And uh, so I was really excited to take over and, and try to work on that book. It was, it was fun. Mm-hmm. Now, we will get to, obviously, Gotham Central in a second, but before we get there, yeah. I'm curious how it came about that you're working on The Legend of the Hawkman. <laughs> um... How did that work out? This is this is a story. There's actually more of a story to this than you know, unless somebody else has already told you and you knew it ahead of time. But, no, um, I, don't, I don't believe so. I, I think I've talked to Ben Rabb, but I've, I've never heard anything else about it, the book. How, how I ended up on it is a really kind of interesting chain of events. Um, I had been asked, I think, like, I got, I've done a couple of superhero-y things in DC, like the Superman thing, the War of the Worlds, mm-hmm. and... Um, something else uh, oh I did some Justice Society stuff yeah, I think there's an all-star comics giant I think yeah a couple little things like that and uh, so Mike Carlin who was the editor one of the editors at DC and I may even have the head editor called me and asked if I would be interested in, interested in doing a Justice League, Justice Society combination miniseries. And I'm like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, I immediately pictured myself drawing like Super Friends, you know? <laughs> and uh, the Alex Toth lover in me it, you know, kind of popped out. I was like, oh, hell yeah. And uh, so I talked to... I guess I ended up talking to the guy who was the actual editor on that, Peter Tomasi, and um, Peter said, okay, I'll be getting the script, and, you know, a couple weeks, I'll send it to you when I get it, and the day came that he was supposed to get the script, and he, he calls me, and he says, I'm finishing the script to you, but I'm taking off for a three-day weekend, so I'll have to, or I'm taking off for vacation, I'm going to be gone for a week, so I'll have to talk to you when I get back. So I, um, I get the script in the mail, and I read it, and it is god awful <laughs> one of the worst scripts i have ever read um just god awful so you're saying if you wrote it it actually would have been better no but <laughs> um, for somebody else for a professional comics writer to have written it hmm. was god awful okay and so i was and then i was like oh shit oh shit oh shit i've agreed to do this project they paid me in advance to start on it oh my god i've got what am i gonna do i'm gonna have to draw this script oh no so for a week i freaked out and uh and then peter gets back to his office finally and he calls me he goes so what'd you think of the script and i went 
well, and he goes, I thought it was terrible. And I was like, oh, thank God. So I was so relieved. <laughs> and he said, we're going to have him do a rewrite, and I'll let you know how it goes. And, and I was like, oh, thank God. So I'm so happy to hear you say this. And I told him what I'd been through. And, um, and then he got the rewrite, and it was just as bad, if not worse. And um, so they canceled the project. And uh, so I was suddenly stuck on an exclusive contract at DC with nothing to do. And um, so Mike called me and was like, "You want to do a? You want to do this? Like, we're gonna, it was when they were doing like Legends of the DC Universe books, and uh, like a one issue Legends of the DC Universe Hawkman story, and Ben Rapp's gonna write it." I was like, "Yeah, sure, why not?" And um, and then they liked the first issue that we did so much that they turned it into that like maxi maxi series or whatever. I guess it was three. 48 pages or something like that and uh so that was that was how that came about wow what was it i mean until you asked me (laughs) (laughs) was it um it's such an interesting so like that was basically like a project to kind of because they are they have you on they have you there they have to give you something so after that like i'm curious how how did Gotham Central then kind of come about? How did you become the you know the artist on it? Because really, I can't imagine the book without you, um, because you kind of define what that book is and what it can be visually. So I'm curious, how, at what point in the of the process you come on board, and did you already know Greg and Ed at that time? Um, I think I can't remember if I'd done Seed of the Crime before I did. Yeah, I'd done it before I did the Hotman thing. Um, I didn't see the crime before that, so I knew Ed already, and we okay. were good friends. And um, how did this work out? I, I I already started working on the Batman Nine Lives project, um, the hardback for that with Dean Motter, and Ed is talking to me and one day on the phone, and he's like. Yeah, me and, me and Greg Rucka were talking about this this idea we had, and he tells me what it is. I was like, dude, I said that's the book I want to, that's the comic I want to draw. That's my comic right there. And he's like, really, you want to draw it? And he's like, and then it was like a race to try to get Nine Lives done. What <laughs> um, DC lost interest in Gotham Central, but um, yeah, and that's how I met Greg was through that. So it was just a kind of a thing where Ed and I had gotten along real well and I was I was anxious to work with him again um, and then I met Greg and we got along really well and the three of us just had exactly the same goal with that book we knew exactly what we wanted to do and you know like I was saying when we first started about a band um, that was just one of those cases where we put the band together and it was like boom we are on you know, they say Led Zeppelin on their first rehearsal, like the first thing they played, they were immediately Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and, um, and it was like that. It was just like they, they told me what they wanted to do for their first story with Mr. Freeze. And they talked about that open scene with the cop getting frozen. And I was just like, I am so in. I want to draw this so bad. And, um, you know, that, that book was always a joy to work on. It was just always fun. And, you know, we talked about... We were all fans of the TV show Homicide: Life on the Street, mm-hmm. and um, and we were like, "This, that's what we want to do. We want to do Homicide: Life on the Street in the DC universe." 
and um, so we all we all already knew we were doing like a cop TV show, like Homicide, and it was just the vision for the book was just rock solid from the very beginning. So I'm curious about a few things. So I mean, obviously, so actually, before we get into Gotham Central itself, I'm just curious from you as an artist perspective up to this point. So you at this point, I believe you'd inked most of your own work. Um, was that always kind of just the way you kind of broke in that you were used to kind of doing pencils and inks? And when you did have to, on occasion, kind of relinquish that and have someone else ink you at that point in the game, was that difficult for you to kind of concede that level of control because you'd always done it? Um, it was more, I was not very confident in my own inks um, prior to doing Nine Lives. I did do my own inks because nobody else could figure out how to ink me. <laughs> it was like, to me, my pencils looked exactly like my inks and it should be easy to do. But they would hire these people that would, that were used to like inking real comic book art. And, uh, you know, with their number two sable brushes and their, and their crow quills and stuff. And that's just not how I draw at all. And they didn't know what to do with me. Um, when I got behind schedule and was really struggling, I've always struggled with monthly schedules. And um, when that happened on Scene of the Crime, Shelly, our editor, asked, you know, who would you want to ink you? Or, you know, I, was, I think I was probably talking to her about why I didn't like my inks. Uh, and she was like, well, what do you picture them looking like? Who would you like to ink you? And I said, Sean Phillips. That's, you know, I wish I could loosen up like Sean does and simplify like Sean does. And she's like, well, if I could get him to ink you, would you have him let him ink you? And I was like, yeah. And Sean signed on. God knows why. Um, so I will take some of the credit for the Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips partnerships. And <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was always really, and, you know, so I trusted Sean. Sean was easy. Um, but I never trusted any other inker. They always butchered me and made myself just lifeless and terrible. And, um, so yeah, I was thinking myself on Gotham Central. I think that's where we were where we were at, right? Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that, again, the, the idea of kind of deadlines, because, you know, when I was speaking with Stefano, he's kind of said that the only reason he ended up becoming an inker to begin with is because he always had the trouble with deadlines. And then he kind of took over inking and realized that's where he was meant to be. Like, he almost didn't really know it till he started doing it. And then and one of his first main inking jobs is obviously you. And you guys were, you know, a match made in heaven. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I already told the story about how, how Stefano ended up with me and um, yeah I mean he, he joined the band and he was perfect you know it was like we added a fourth member to the band and it was you know Stefano Stefano knew I don't know how he does it I think Stefano's amazing um, and I really I feel like he can adapt to almost any I mean the fact that he can adapt to almost any style the fact that he could ink Charlie Adler and look like Charlie Adler and getting me and look like me um, is, is amazing to me. You know, I mean, I, I especially in Charlie's page, I think you'd be hard-pressed to pick out between a page of Charlie Inc. and a page of Stefano Inc. Hmm. Um, you know, for me, I can totally see the difference between when I think something and when Stefano's in something, but I don't know if everybody else could, you know. For sure, and that makes sense, obviously, because you did it, and so it's easier for you to obviously be able to well, see those changes. Yeah, yeah and I mean, I see the difference in my style and Stefano's style. 
um, they're real obvious to me, but um, but it just gelled really well with my penciling. It just looked right. And Stefan's originals look a lot different from his printed pages. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of gray on Stefano's originals. There's a lot of stuff that gets whited out and marked over, and he makes he makes marks in weird, interesting ways um, that I don't do, that I'm afraid to do. Um, but you don't really see them in the printed work because everything gets turned to black. Mm. Um, a lot of the subtlety of his work gets lost uh, in the printed page. Going back to Gotham Central and kind of working through it, I'm curious. I mean, so much of what make that makes that book work is that it feels real, it feels grounded, and all the characters. Again, like you said, it kind of has that that TV show that kind of feel to it because you feel like you're watching people and in crazy situations, but you're still you're watching the real people. You're not necessarily watching Batman do crazy things. You're watching how people react to Batman do crazy things. So, what, how important was it to you to get that? kind of grounded feel and then you cast the book amazingly well in terms of your design so what was it like to going through the design work to make sure that the characters fit this place and fit what Ed and um, Greg were kind of conceptualizing in their heads the design work was actually really hard because they were all just regular people um, you know it, I, I realized the, um, the effectiveness of a comic book character costume real fast because it becomes a shorthand that you know it's like it just identifies there's okay you you see that guy in red tights with the horns on his head that's daredevil (laughs) um you don't necessarily have to draw his face a certain way but when you when you start to draw just like regular people interacting all the time you've gotta you gotta push it and and I, i mean i learned from that experience because i think a lot of i don't think the character designs were that great myself i think there were things i could have done better um, but I mean that's just kind of how I what I like to draw is like I don't I don't do the big fantastic stuff um, Greg always says that he, he calls my work um, documentarian <laughs> he's not more a documentarian and that's probably true I mean he's a lot of reference and stuff so um, I'm really drawing what I see instead of, like, inventing things and drawing them. Did you use any particular kind of, um, like, people to kind of base some of the characters on so that you would be able to kind of... Because you're... As you said, like, you're, you're doing people and they're kind of... They're doing things, but you have to play with angles and, and kind of really capture these characters. So did you use any kind of reference material or, you know, kind of models to kind of make sure that you had these designs down pat so you could replicate them and use them in multiple different situations because you don't have the typical superhero shorthand? I did not on Gotham Central. Um, I use I use photo reference, but it's all me. You know, I mean, even the women were me, I think. Like, um, <laughs> I, can't remember, I can't remember ever having any women pose for anything for Gotham Central. Um, yeah, no, I, I just you know, took photos of myself. And, um, so, you know, but I just, I, that was, no, I had to, I had to pull that all out of my head, which is, I think, what made it hard. But, I mean, everybody kind of develops a, um, everybody would kind of develop a shorthand that hopefully would identify them in that book. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Renee always has the ponytail with a couple loose strands and drunk. Um, you know, I didn't design uh, Alan, but he was really neat. You know, he was the African-American guy with the goatee and the shaved head and the glasses. Um, so there were, I w- you know, I was able to develop shorthands for the characters, you know, over time. But there were so many of them. And like I said, they were all just regular shows. Mm-hmm. One thing that you probably had to focus on more than your typical comic book artist, just because, again, the nature of the characters is you have to do a lot of like real clothing. Like it has to feel again, it has to feel real. And you don't have superheroes jumping around in tights that you can kind of rely on to take up a lot of the page count. So on every page, you're dealing with regular people re- wearing clothes that need to look real. So again, was that an ongoing challenge to kind of make it visually interesting, but also still look grounded and real? Well, visually interesting doesn't have to come from the subject matter as much as how you present the subject matter. Hmm. You know? Um, Look at a movie like, oh God, The Lighthouse is one of my favorite films of the last year. Um, You know, there's nothing overly fantastic about most of the visuals in that movie but the, all the visuals are absolutely gorgeous and stunning I mean they can they can take a shot of Robert Pattinson standing on a ladder painting a wall or working on shingles and make it the most beautiful thing you've ever seen so um, it's all about how you present it it's all about composition it's all about for me and in that comic for with moving the camera around a lot um so we don't get too static. Um, that was that was a big one. This might be a silly question, but did you kind of lay out the rooms that they were going to be operating in, like the squad rooms, etc.? Yeah, yeah. I had the squad. I had a. I had drawings I'd done of the squad room from a bunch of different angles. Basically, like as if I were standing in each corner of the room. I knew where everybody's desk was. I knew who sat at what desks. I knew where the coffee room was. I knew where the locker room was. I knew where the the holding not the holding cells, the uh, interrogation rooms were. Um, oh yeah, but I've always done that. I, I've done that with everything I've ever worked on. Just, uh, just kind of part of your process, I guess. It, it's just how I see things. Hmm. You know, a lot of times when I'm when I'm well, I mean, we can get into more of how my process developed, but I mean, now I I make SketchUp models for all of the sets. Like, if I had been if I had had SketchUp when I was working on Gotham Central, it would have been a lot easier. I would have just built a model of that of, of the the squadron, you know, right down to the file folders on the desk. I would have, I would have just built that whole thing, and I would have always been able to see it from whatever angle I wanted to see it from. It would have been like I could walk around a real room. Um, you know that's that's what I do now and you know you asked about the characters faces um, I still pose and take photographs but for the faces um, I use um, a piece of software called Daz Studio um, it's a lot like Poser uh, which you might be more familiar with um, but it's you know it's it's figure animation 3D software and you can Essentially, you know, from a, from a basic human person face template, body template, you can make any, you can make that person look like almost anything, mm-hmm. and, and you get to see them from all the different angles and stuff. And that's that's what I do now. 
I've just always been like that. I've never been, I've never been able to just like close my eyes and picture something and draw it. Interesting. Um, I've always been a reference hound. You know, if I can't see it, if it doesn't really exist, I, I have trouble drawing it. Um, but, you know, like if I were to do a sci-fi book or something, well, Lazarus is a sci-fi book. Yeah. Um, I actually, you know, well, in the early issues of Lazarus, she was riding a motorcycle, which Greg described as just a badass motorcycle. So I had to design this futuristic motorcycle. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, built a SketchUp model of it. And, uh, you know, designed, designed this motorcycle in SketchUp. Um, so, I mean, I, I do that now all the time. I mean, I, it's, I, don't have to, I don't have to imagine these things. I can imagine them and then build them. Mm-hmm. It's easier for me to make them three-dimensionally than it is for me to imagine them in two dimensions, I guess. When when you're working on Gotham Central, especially in the, the you know the first year, um, what like when you were getting the scripts in from Ed and from Greg, like how like how full script was it? Like was it ex, you know a lot of detail? How much room did they kind of leave you to play, or did was it a lot more you know specific? Um, Ed scripts are very are are direction light. Um, the, Ed scripts are very short. Like, for, for a full page of comic, Ed might write half or three quarters of a page of script. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all it takes up. You know, maybe two, three lines to describe the panel, the dialogue, then the next panel, two, three lines, and the dialogue. And it, it's real fast. Um, Greg is the exact opposite. He's not as bad as Alan Moore or even Neil Gaiman, <laughs> but um, he... He gets into more of the minutia, and especially when we first started working together, Greg was used to working. With, like Greg was used to not even knowing who his artist would be sometimes. Mm. And once we established a level of trust between us, Greg was able to loosen up a little bit and write a little more freely, where he wasn't telling me camera angles and page layouts and things. Um, you know, a lot of writers in comics think that that's their job to do, that you know, they, can, they should tell you what all the camera angles are and stuff. And, uh, is this a family show, or are we adults only? You can swear if you'd like to. Yeah, and I'm just like, fuck that shit. Because, <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not the writer's job. You know, the writer's not the artist. That's my job. Um, and, you know, if you're going to hire me to draw your book, then you better let me fucking do what I do. And you do what you do. I'm not going to change your dialogue. You don't tell me how to lay out a page. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, I get real bad out of shape about that. Um, but yeah, once Greg developed the trust with me with that, it was, you know, it was really, but it was also unmistakable when I, which of the two of them had written a page in Gotham Central hmm. based on the script. Um, because, you know, I would, I would turn, I would go for, Ed, you know, like, give me, like, two lines, like, you know, oh, you know, Renee walks out of the room, and then there's some dialogue, and Greg will say, you know, Renee's been in a broom closet, and inside the broom closet, there were three brooms and seven vacuum cleaners, and it's a low-angle shot up from the floor, um, you know, so it was really different at first, and Greg's not, like I said, Greg doesn't write like that for me now at all. Um, and maybe I'm exaggerating it, I don't know, that just what it seemed like at the time. There was, Greg's script was a lot more dense. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah was, I mean, usually they didn't write 
in the same issue together. Usually, um, there were, I think we did like two story arcs. I think the Joker story arc and the first free story arc, they, um, those were what we called red ball cases, were what cops call red ball cases, where everybody from all shifts is on duty on that case all at one time. Um, but normally, they, they each had their group of detectives that they were writing. Um, so, and, and they didn't mix. Um, so I think those, I think those are the only two where I would be reading an Ed page and then turn the page and it would be a Greg page. When you're having to adapt mid issue like that, like how, how did it kind of affect your flow? We were all so in sync that it didn't, it didn't affect my flow at all. I don't remember it affected my flow. Like I said, we were just, we were just all on the same wavelength. When when you when you get when Greg's becomes more comfortable with you, I mean, did you guys kind of know that this is you know we're we're going to work together and this is I mean like how early did you know that something like Lazarus was going to happen for you too where you know you were going to become his artist and or not his artist but like you guys were going to collaborate together and it was going to be that long fruitful relationship? How early on did you have a sense that this could be something like real? Um, I remember. I mean, we all got along really well right from the start. I mean, at that point, I really only worked at any length with two writers, and that was Ed and Dean. Um, Ed was easier than Dean for me. Um, Dean, I really, really struggled with Dean. Um, And so, I mean, I knew I was going to do more stuff with Ed. There was, like, no doubt. Um, and yeah, I think I think pretty early on, uh, you know, it was like, okay, Greg's going to be one of my people. You know, he's going to be he's one of my guys that I can I know I can work with. As far as like when I knew something like Lazarus was going to happen, I mean, we have to jump ahead past the Marvel years, and we have to talk about you know Image Comics and and how that kind of changed things. You know, mm, for sure. Well, I guess we'll we'll get there then. So I'm not quite done with Gotham Central yet. Um, I can tell. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I mean, I guess the the you know some of the, some of the biggest calling cards you have are obviously, obviously Gotham Central, Daredevil, and Lazarus. Which one do you think like if you when you go to a convention, which one do you think is most likely to come across your desk the most? Um. Well, probably Lazarus because it's the most recent. Um. After that, Daredevil. I get a lot of Daredevil coming across my table. Um. You know, that was the most mainstream book I've done. Hmm. Um, Gotham Central, however, has been steady. Gotham Central just is like an evergreen. It just keeps, people just keep buying it. And people just keep reading it. Very lucky that way. Mm Mm-hmm. One thing I, I talked about with Stefano, and I, I wanted to get your perspective on it. He had mentioned that it bugged him that on the original hardcovers to Gotham Central, um, that your name wasn't in the same typeface as uh, Ed and Greg. And he felt that that was kind of an injustice to you because the book didn't exist without you. And you you established, as I said, like everything about the visuals and how that world was going to operate visually was from you. And so and then in the later omnibus that they did, your name was in the same typeface as Ed and Greg. Was that... 
were you ever aware of that? Was that ever a discussion point or did it ever something that kind of did irk you or not? Or I'm just curious, like he was really upset about it for you. Um, not that you need him to swoop in as your, as your white knight, (laughs) but I'm just curious if that is something that ever even came up at all. Oh yeah. Um, by the time my relationship with DC ended, which we're coming to that anyway, I was ready to be rid of DC. Um, I felt completely. I was. I felt like I was completely unappreciated. I went from working with an editor at Vertigo who loved my work um, to and would have would have fought a bear for me. To just the people at DC were kind of assholes, you know. The people at DC mainstream, uh, you know, a couple people in particular were just assholes, just awful people. And um, I was ready to be done. I was ready to be gone. You know, I remember. I remember that. Can't remember what book it was that was coming out at Vertigo at the time, but they were already hustling out trades, and they hadn't gotten a trade of Gotham Central out, and. We were like, why haven't you guys put a trade out? Why haven't you guys put a trade out? And the guy, one of the people who was in, in like marketing of the trades, said, "Well, we're, we're really trying to just trying to figure out how to do this trade thing." And I mean, this is like what you know? What year was Gotham Central? I mean, we're talking like the early two thousands. You're just now figuring it out. <laughs> there was just a lot of that. Just a lot of we don't care. There was a lot of fighting about Gotham Central. Um, you know, Brian Bendis at one point said to us, like, you know, if if your if your job is to sell comics and you can't sell Gotham Central, then you should change careers. And um, you know, but that was kind of the uphill battle that we faced with that book. When we got to the end of it, you know, there were the little slights, like like the name thing, um, which I was yeah, I was absolutely furious about. I was the only person who was in that book literally from cover to cover, every single page. And I was treated like a second-class citizen. Um, I'm a second-class creator on the cover. Yeah, it pissed me off to no end. And I will... That's why our letterer and our colorist on Lazarus have their names, you know, just as big as mine and Greg's on the cover of Lazarus. Because they are collaborators. They are artistic collaborators. The book doesn't exist without them. It's not a comic book without art in it. Stop treating the artists as if they're not as big or as important as the writers. I mean, they still do it. They, they do it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they... It's like, you know... I don't know. You know, it's just... The, the writer gets, gets the credit for the book. But it's like, you know... This writer, you know, is responsible for this thing happening. And it's like, wait a minute, but... It's a comic book, you know. There are a lot of people involved in the creation of that. You're giving the writer all the credit, and it's it's stupid. It's stupid and lazy, mm-hmm. and it's especially infuriating when the publisher is the one doing it. For sure, it's interesting too because it felt like um, it felt like in the two, early two thousands that suddenly. It, it was shifting back to writers because it felt like in the nineties, like the art took over. Um, like, you know, yeah. it felt like books were yeah. sold based on the artists that were working on them. And suddenly in the early two thousands, especially it felt like there was a, a hard left turn away from that. And it felt like the, almost the publishers were downplaying the artists and suddenly the, the writers were back in the driver's seat. And I don't know why. 
Well, I think a lot of it has to do with um, publishing deadlines and the fact that, you know, a writer can write a whole script in a week or less. And an artist has to take, you know, most of us, you know, four to eight weeks to draw it. So that means it's going to be filmed artists, which means that the artist isn't going to be um, as closely tied. I mean, we had filmed artists on Gotham Central. You say you can't imagine it without me, but we had other artists on that book. True. I, um, I meant more like, I mean, the book, you, you established that the style. Like, if you're, you're talking about house style, like, you, your style was the house style for Gotham Central. And I felt like everyone else who came in had to play within what you had established in that world is more what I was getting at. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's just because it's the first time I'd really been, I mean, on a book that anybody else drew on, I was the one who established it, I don't know, but, um, you know, what were we talking about? Well, you were mentioning mentioning the fact that you did have fill-in artists in Gotham Central. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, that's that's what I think about why the writers sometimes get all the credit. Um, It is true that, you know, if, especially at Marvel and DC, if, if if an artist is running late, fuck it, we'll bring in another artist. You know, you're never going to hear them do that about the writers. Hmm. Uh, but they don't have to. You know, generally the writers are on, they're on a much easier schedule. <clears throat> excuse me, than um, than the artists are. It's an interesting perspective, and I hadn't really thought of that before, but you are, you are right, and like that's why you have writers who are also able to manage multiple books in a way that an artist could not do. No, I mean, I can get... I, I, can, I, I can get on my soapbox about this, because, you know, comics were originally intended to be little anthology magazines. Um, you know, when for most of their history, comics has been little anthology magazines. And it probably wasn't until, you know, the 70s or 80s. Maybe it was probably, maybe it was during the 60s. Maybe people who could draw real fast, like um, Ditko and Kirby, maybe changed things a little bit, where you had an artist who could draw the whole issue. But prior to that, you know, the, the main artist on a book might only draw 16 pages, which is imminently doable in a month. But when you start wanting an artist to draw, I mean, especially before they started having so many ads in them, you know, most, I think when I started at DC and Vertigo, I think most of our books were 28 pages. Wow. Um, that can't be right. That would only be four pages of ads. <laughs> I don't know. But in any event, you know, we, we did have more pages to draw. We started having more pages to draw per issue, which inevitably creates a, a workflow stoppage you know and I think that that comics fans grew accustomed to getting their issue of Superman or Batman every month but you know we've forgotten at this point that that issue of Superman or Batman for much of its history had a front story and then probably two backup stories mm-hmm. um, and those are not it wasn't all just one artist but then we we slowly came to a point where it was expected that the artist would do everything, including the cover. And, um, but, but, but the publication schedule is still the same. Hmm. You know, which, which is difficult. For sure. Uh, moving a little bit forward on Gotham Central, I'm just curious, I mean, of the arcs you worked on, which one do you think creatively kind of pushed you 
the most. I mean, obviously, the, the, I think the the fan favorites are obviously Half a Life and Soft Targets. But what, which were uh, of the ones you worked on? Which one do you think that you really got to push yourself artistically to do something special? I mean, obviously, the entire book to me was special. But is there anything in particular of on your run there that you thought was extra? Like you got to really push yourself in a specific direction? Well, I don't think that book caused me to have to push myself very much because, again, it was so down to earth. It was so, it was so everyday, you know? I mean, it was like, it was these people's day-to-day lives. So there, there wasn't much need to push myself as an artist. I mean, I, I guess if anything, um, well, you know, I just thought, I don't think that Gotham Central was a book where I had to push myself that much. That was just, it was just straight up storytelling the way I do storytelling. It was just, it was really easy. Like I just drew what I saw, you know. It just it just worked. That, that book was just an easy one. It was just an easy one to work on. You know, I took longer than I should have sometimes, but um, you know, I I would never. I don't have any complaints about the creative process at all. Hmm. When in a book like that, you know, I, mean, I, will, I, I will I will though since you brought up Half a Life, say that Half a Life was one where we realized really early on that we were doing something special. Mm. And and that was an awareness that we had as we were working on it. So I was going to ask about that, yeah. So you guys kind of knew what that was going to be? Like, that's such a special, you know, that's a very special tale. So, I mean, you, you guys kind of knew in the middle of it that, you know, this is something different. This is, this is, this is something. I... Yeah, I mean, I was so excited to get the scripts every month for that story. Uh, I just, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I think that it's still my favorite thing that Greg's written. Um, I mean, I love working on Lazarus, and the stuff, the work he's doing on Lazarus is great, but that's still my favorite. I mean, to me, it's like everything was in place there. You know, the, the, the villain being Two-Faced, the story about, the story about her coming out, which was so needed in comics at the time. Um, it's too bad that it was had to be told by two straight white guys, but um, at least it got told. Um, you know, yeah, it was just um, it was just something we became aware of really soon. It was I, I felt like they, they had that coming out story, but it also. Um, was a story about acceptance, about self-acceptance, and about thinking that you had to hide part of yourself from other people to be accepted. Mm. And I think that is something that's universal. And it speaks to an even, I mean, yes, it speaks very specifically and very importantly to um, the LGBTQ community. But I think that it also has it makes that struggle approachable and understandable to everybody Mm. because of the universal appeal of like, you know, being different, I'm not going to be good enough, which is what, which is the story that Renee had told herself. She couldn't, she couldn't be out because she wouldn't be accepted by her peers. She wouldn't be accepted by her family. Um, You know, and I think that it's, 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 uh, there's people who can relate to that who might not have otherwise related to the struggle of an LGBTQ person. Hmm. You know? 
Mm. I mean, I think the environment's really, really different now too. Mm. Um, For sure. You know, like I said, like I said, I I don't know that I would even want to take on that story now. I would be like, that's not my story to tell. Mm. I don't know shit about. It. <laughs> I have no idea what it's like to live in this community like that. Um, um, and I think that those are the people who should be telling that story. I think that, you know, there, there need to be more of those voices in comics. Um, we have way more than enough, you know, white guys telling stories. We don't need any more. You know? For sure. Did you When you guys were working on that story, did you ever feel like, in le- if we don't land this this might just be like an aspect of the character that's forgotten or pushed away. Like, did you ever feel that we really got to make this work? This has to really be strong because they can't ignore this if it's really good. That might've been more on Greg's mind than mine because he was more invested in Renee's history than I was. And for him, it was more of a personal thing um, where he he felt very strongly that I don't want to speak out. I don't want to speak for him, but he told me that he felt very strongly that from the first time he wrote Renee in Detective Comics that she was a lesbian, and um, so I think that might have been hanging over his head a little more strongly than mine. But I mean, I I knew he was sticking the story from the moment I read the script. There was no question in my mind. It was just a case of. Just draw what he wrote, and Don't change a thing. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and this is this is asking a piece of commentary from you, but what do you think it is about Greg that makes him write such amazing female characters? Like, he really gets into them and makes them work. Like, what do, what do you think is it is? He's kind of like, I don't know, I don't know if the comparison is necessarily apt, but I mean, you think of Joss Whedon in television and movies really writing strong women. I think of Greg being the same thing, but in comics. I don't really, I don't really have, I, I don't, I don't really have many thoughts on that. I just know what Greg does. Um, I know that, I, I don't know, I don't know. I honestly, I really have no idea. And there have, he and I have talked, me, this concerns me more than it does him. But he and I have talked about the fact that it's like, why are, why are these two straight white guys telling the story of this young woman? You know, why is it, why isn't a young woman telling that story? Why, you know, why, why are we the ones doing it? And, and I, you know, I've I've talked to him about that. I I have some, I don't want to call it guilt about that, but, you know, I, I kind of ask myself, you know, who am I to, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what, what a young woman coming of age feels like. You know, I know what a young boy coming of age feels like, but I don't know what a young woman coming of age feels like. I can have empathy, but I can't ever, I can't really, for real, in real life, walk a mile in those shoes. So, you know, I, I have to ask that question, but unfortunately, you know, that's kind of the state of comics right now where it's kind of up to some of the, or at least, maybe it's not as bad as it was before. Before, at least what we were doing Gotham Central, it needed straight white guys to kick those doors down. You know, um, I, you know, it had to be the straight white guys kicking the doors down so that the people of color and the LGBTQ community and stuff like that could come in. Hmm. 
I don't know. No, no, I mean, that's, I don't think you're wrong there. I mean, it's interesting how that has changed over time. Like, let me ask, you mentioned that not necessarily guilt, but that kind of feeling kind of weighing on you. Is that um, something that has evolved over time? Are you feeling more and more that way? Or is that always kind of been part of your wake up? Or is this more of a, as the world started to change, you've kind of thought about, should we be the ones telling this story? You know, I think it's a combination of all those things. It's a combination of me getting older. It's a combination of the world changing. It's just, you know, it's a little bit of experience, I guess. Um, but, and yeah, I mean, a lot of the world changing too. And, you know, I, th- I hate that the term woke has become kind of, you know, a pejorative, but, you know, just waking up to the struggles of other people. You know, waking up to the struggles of people who aren't just white men. Um, you know, and so I mean, I hate to say that my my vision was so such tunnel vision at a time in my life, but again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier about just you know the folly of youth. You know, I mean that does happen, right? I mean we we notice things more as we get older, and we our worldview gets broadened, and things are brought to our attention, and we look at things differently than we did before. Sure, and it's kind of a catch twenty two because you know I talk about this stuff and I'm like, well, we don't need more, we don't need more stories from straight white guys, and I'm like, I'm kind of talking myself out of a job. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I mean, honestly, if I if I if I lost my career because there were no more straight white guy stories to tell, and there were people of color and people LGBTQ people. Um, writing and drawing more comic stories and there was no more room for me, that'd kind of be okay with me. You know, that's, like I said, I, you know, my, my, my particular group's voice has been heard more than enough in this world at this point. Mm-hmm. You know? That's a, a question kind of shifting gears for a second. When, which world do you feel, do you think felt grimier to existing creatively just in terms of the the darkness inherent in them Gotham or Hell's Kitchen which one kind of felt dirtier Oh you know no um, Gotham definitely <laughs> um, you know by the time we were working on Daredevil I think that you know New York was so getting so gentrified and stuff by then or Hell's Kitchen was getting so gentrified and, and New York had kind of changed its 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 complexion by then. It wasn't the C D Times Square peep shows and you know, it wasn't the it wasn't Frank Miller's Hell's Kitchen anymore. True. You know, and Gotham is just yeah, I mean I don't wanna live in a place where I could get on the subway and you know, at the next stop, the Joker could get in and sit down next to me. <laughs> you know? uh, that, that was always what we talked about with that book. It was always like, we want to make a book where you're riding on the subway and the Joker could get on the subway and sit next to you. That's the book we want. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let me ask, I'm, I'm curious about, from an artistic perspective, when you're working in Gotham Central and you have uh, Lee Lawfridge doing the colors and then you go over and work on Daredevil and you initially, I think, have Frank Dermata doing colors – how does that does that affect how you lay out pages or how you think about things, knowing how the colors are going to affect the, the the end visual, or does that even play a part of your mind? Um, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, I think that it's more broad. Where if, 
if you know that somebody's going to be coloring it, if you know that the work's going to be in color, um, it's a different, it's a slightly different approach than if it's going to be just black and white. Um, if you're going to be working only in black and white and pen and ink, you have a lot more problems to solve. Hmm. Whereas if you've got, if the book's going to be colored, you can let the colorist solve some of your problems of atmosphere and mood and lighting. Um, if you're working in black and white, you have to, you have to make the black and white do that. Now, um, I also believe it's true that if it doesn't look good, black and white, it's not going to look good in color. Um, but I still find myself using that crutch more than I wish I was. Hmm. Um, and sometimes it's just a time shortcut. It would just take too much time to try to figure out, okay, how am I going to do all these shots in just black and white? and let somebody add a little bit of color to it later. You know, I mean, I, I wish that I could design a page like Mike Mignola does, but uh, it, he seems to do that naturally and it takes me forever to do it. When when you're working on Daredevil, and again, you kind of said before that, you know, you kind of, you were excited at the beginning and that kind of waned as it went on. Um, and I mean, in the first year in the book, you're, you're using the character in, in different locales. You're kind of, I mean, initially you're in jail and then you're after that, you're kind of in Europe. What was that? Was that artistically more fun to kind of not do just the typical kind of Hell's Kitchen Daredevil fighting and actually break, taking the character in a different locale visually, like w- being able to use different language? Um, nah, I wanted to draw rooftops with water towers on them. <laughs> that's, that's Daredevil, rooftops and water towers. Um, I mean, you know, it was it was interesting, but I mean, I think that Ed was trying to to push it outside a little bit more. Um, and I mean, that that wasn't necessarily. I mean, I think we I think we only we did that pretty early on, and we came back to New York pretty quick. Yeah. Um, I think, as I recall, I'm not, I'm not for sure, but uh, we had spent a lot of time in Europe. Yeah, it was probably only six or seven months, or like six or seven issues. It wasn't it wasn't a long time, but it was it was just interesting that first year you go from the cramped quarters of jail to you know the you know a much more open feeling Europe before you do come back to Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, no, I was I was always happier. I was happier drawing New York. When when you're doing again, when this is a hard question to ask, I guess, or it's harder for me to, to verbalize it. When you are doing a character like Daredevil, which has such a, a rich artistic history, like w- were you co- cognizant of trying to make sure that it kind of still felt like it felt like you know kind of that old school Daredevil feeling that Frank Miller vibe, or how much of do you think you brought of yourself to the book as you were drawing it? Well. I mean, I was super influenced by what Alex had done. Um, I had discovered Alex's work on Daredevil and just loved it so much. I mean, I'm sitting here in my chair. I've got all my Alex Malev Daredevil hardbacks sitting right beside me. (laughs) You know, they they stay close at hand. Um, You know, he, I was, I, I think, I think my, I think the influence was more him. Than anything else, I wish that it had been more Dave Mazzucchelli, but uh, probably more more Alex. Was that and again, as I said before, is that partially because it was the run that preceded yours, and it, there was kind of a, a a visual tone that it was easier to kind of keep it consistent because that's what the book had been for the you know last couple of years before that. 
I think it was, I think it had more to do with the fact that Alex and I were just coming from, we liked the same stuff. I don't think Alex really read many comics growing up, growing up in Europe. I don't think he did. He was, he's more of an illustrator. And that's what I like too. I like, like, mid-century American illustration more than I like any comics. Hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I'm looking at my bookshelf here, and there are a lot of comics on my bookshelf, but only because most of them with words, and um, I have them digitally now. Um, but, I mean, most of my art books and most of the art that I like to look at is old illustrators. I don't really look at that many comics for reference. There are a few people, there are a few artists who... I consistently look at like I, I just try to learn from them all the time um, but for the most part I don't I, I don't even read comics anymore mm. I can't even remember the last time I read a comic any particular reason or just kind of naturally kind of drifted away um because well I, I, it's kind of this way like if if somebody comes and builds you a brick barbecue pit on on your back porch, I bet every barbecue pit that person sees, they're looking at that barbecue pit going, oh, I wonder why that brick is that way. I wonder why they did that. I wonder why they did that. You know, <laughs> when you're, when it's something that you craft yourself, you can't look at it with the same, you can't get lost in the story the same way anymore. You know, I'm sure it's that way for filmmakers. Like, most films, for most filmmakers, probably they just look at them critically as you know as a craft, and you know, I mean, there's probably really really good ones that make you go, oh yeah, now that's a film I love. But for the most part, most things that are filmed, they probably look at it and, and kind of take it apart mm. as they're looking at it, and that's kind of what I do to comics. I, I I tend to just look at the art and take it apart, and you know, try to figure out. Okay, why did this person make this decision? Why did they make this decision? Um, I probably get comics that the only reason I know the stories in them or that I've looked at the pictures so much, I've kind of just absorbed it. <laughs> but I've never sat down and read the story from cover to cover. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've got... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can think of quite a few that I pro- I've never sat down and read. I'm not sitting here looking at my bookshelf going, yeah, no, I've never read that. No, nope, never read that. Never read that. But I've looked at all the art. <laughs> I could tell you all the, the illustrations in it, but I've never read it. Wow. I mean, I guess that I mean, you, you, you do make sense there. I mean, like, yeah, I, I, I guess it makes me cur- more curious about, I guess, people who can read comics after having worked in the industry and been artists and without pulling it apart. I guess maybe it'd be more interesting to kind of see how they can do that. Whereas it makes sense to, it'd be harder for you to kind of see it because you're, you're gravitating towards what you do. Your eye is geared a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a job for me now. You know, it's not, it's not something, I mean, I love to draw and I love the medium, but it's not something I do for fun anymore. Hmm. You know, it's not. It's not something I do for enjoyment. Um, I, I can't even imagine sitting down and reading a comic book. <laughs> like I, I just like comic books happen at my desk in my office. They don't happen anywhere else. <laughs> <sighs> so I'm asked a question. Where Where do you keep your Eisner awards? Uh, on my bookshelf. Yeah. 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 Actually, one of them got bent. I just fixed it the other day. Oh, really? <laughs> So, as because um, I guess how how many Eisners do you have? I'm trying to remember how many there were. 
Just two? I there think was it was... One. No, there was one for Gotham Central for the Half-A-Life story arc, and there's one for uh, a short uh, Captain America story that Greg and I did. That's right. So I let's I, I feel like we're almost out of, we're already kind of out of time. So I feel like at some point I'll have you come back to just to just talk about Lazarus because there's enough in Lazarus to have its own episode. But I'm curious as we kind of move okay. move through Daredevil. Um, when Daredevil ended, were, did you feel relief that it was time to move on to something new? I'm trying to remember how that ended. I think Ed had decided to, to stop. And I think that when Ed left, they weren't they were bringing a whole new team. Um, that was actually a really difficult time when that ended because Marvel couldn't really see where else they could use me. I think. Hmm. Um, yeah, I guess Ed had, Ed had decided to, to end his work on it. I think the next thing I did was the um, Dark Tower thing. Mm-hmm. I might have a couple little things here and there, but then um, somebody hit on the idea of having me do the Dark Tower story arc, and I jumped right on that. I was I was all over that. Now, before I actually get quite quite off Daredevil, I did want to mention. So, right near the end of your tenure, do you do uh, a beautiful issue um, all about uh, Wilson Fisk and how eventually he come kind of comes back to New York? Um, and I don't know if, if you recall, but there's this beautiful shot that you did with uh, just like um, uh, like swords sticking out of Wilson Fisk's back um, and he's just kind of on his knees and there's like kind of blood on his hands and it's such a gorgeous image so obviously like how did you you, you kept it so fresh like I'm tr- just wondering how you how you were able to maintain that this far into your run it just felt like you still had a lot of interest in, in, in what was going on even if it maybe was not where, maybe where you wanted to be anymore it still felt visually fresh well, I don't ever remember not wanting to be there. Um, I, I really, I don't have an answer for for that. I mean, I'm. I mean, I'm, I'm my biggest critic, but I'm also, and so I'm. I'm not going to say, "Oh yeah, I, I did do that great, didn't I?" Um, <laughs> I I'll mean, you're you're perfectly allowed to do that. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, it might look like. I'm hacking, but I'm never going to hack. Like, mm. I kill myself on every page. I guess maybe that's the best way to put it. I, 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 kill, myself on, I kill myself on every page. I was talking to Duncan Figredo at one point, and he says, you know, like, he, says he starts out with this great idea, and then he just kills it dead. <laughs> that's kind of what I do. You know, with every page, I just, you know, I draw and I draw and I draw, and I work and I work and I work until I've killed it dead. And uh, that's that's all, you know. So I mean, it's like you say, how do I keep it fresh? I guess it's probably because I kill myself on every page, whether it looks like I did or not. Hmm. You know, for sure. Now, when uh, so so Daredevil ends, and Marvel's obviously trying to figure out where you where you might fit in. Was there ever a moment there where you're like, well, like I don't know what I'm going to do next? Like, like did you did did you ever feel like? Like where do I go? Because obviously the DC experiment didn't end great, and you weren't feeling great, maybe great about that. So were you ever kind of looking around and saying like, I don't think I can go back to DC. I got to make this Marvel <laughs> thing work, or how did like? Yeah, I definitely knew I couldn't go back to DC. Um, 
<laughs> that bridge had been burnt at that point. Um, not by me, but by somebody else. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Marvel thing was really hard. I wanted, I, I wanted to be able to do other stuff there. I felt like there was stuff I probably could have done. Um, there were characters I would have been happy to work on, but at the same time, I think they, I think they had this this love affair with the idea of me and Ed taking over Daredevil, and that's why I ended up there. Mm. Um, Joe Quesada fought his ass off for me. He really wanted me and Ed on that book. Um, but then after that, they were kind of, it was kind of like the same thing with Gotham Central. It was like, oh well, now what are we doing? <laughs> you know, um, there was a little bit of that. I, I, I. Yeah, but then, I mean, at the same time, I mean, it was it was probably a good year after I finished Daredevil that I left Marvel, I think, at least a year. Because, well, yeah, sure, because I worked on the uh, the Dark Tower story, and I did a couple other things here and there. Oh, well, for sure. Like, you, you, you did an arc on Amazing Spider-Man that was, you know, again... Oh, yeah, yeah, did the Spike stuff, yeah. I mean, you definitely were working. Like, it's not like you didn't have any projects. And the the Grim Hunt at uh, on Amazing Spider-Man was a big deal at the time that had been, you know, building up to for, at that point, I think a couple of years. So it's not like they weren't giving you work that was, you know, going to have eyeballs on you. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I didn't, I didn't know anything about what was going on with that when it happened. You know, I was, I was like, Grim, what's this Grim Hunt thing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> probably I should read more comics. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, that, that was just a case of, like, they were moving in a different direction than I was by the end. Um, and by the end of that, by the end of, not necessarily Daredevil, by the end of the time at Marvel, um, the whole image thing was kicking into gear. And I knew that's where I wanted to be. I, I knew I wanted to be doing creator-owned stuff. Now, before you do kind of make that break, you did get to also work with that on the Winter Soldier book. And I'm curious, what was that yeah, like yeah. What was that like working together on, on that character? I, you know, obviously that, you know, Ed really shaped that character, but then you're coming on. And not that you hadn't already done some work with the character before, but what was it like to actually run that book? Um, yeah, I loved it. I, you know, Ed, Ed's really easy for me to work with. Um, Ed, Ed seems to, to view the storytelling pacing and stuff the same way I do. Greg and I actually kind of see it a little differently. So a lot of times, a lot of times I'll, I'll slightly pace a page a little differently than the way he did, which he's fine with. Um, he, he's, he, he'll be the first to tell you that he doesn't know from visuals and he like, he just wants me to handle all that. Um, Ed, I think because he was an artist, he makes it real easy. Like, it's just like, Oh, okay. I draw this, 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 and this. Got it. Um, so yeah, that was enjoyable. And I liked that character. I, I was really impressed with what Ed had done on Captain America and with creating the winter soldier character. It's, it's a crying shame that, um, Marvel gets all the credit for that character and I mean I know that right now we say oh yeah Ed Brubaker did it but you know when when there's a Winter Soldier toy that comes out it doesn't see a dime mm. um, you know that's a shame but uh, but I, I think that what he had done that character was cool I love Black Widow um, who was in the whole story arc that I, did I do a story arc? did I do a full arc? I think you did 
I'm trying to remember because I, I feel like you worked on it for at least eight issues or something. No, uh, it wasn't that long. I mean, it was it was three or four tops. Hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it was fun. Yeah. Again, I was also getting burned out on the superheroes by then. True, but I mean, I guess working on a book like that, which again skews a little bit away from your traditional superheroes did that kind of again help a little bit i mean it's kind of like the daredevil thing where he is a superhero but not as outright superhero as a lot of others and even when you did spider-man it was probably the most grounded version of spider-man you could have done because it was (laughs) in terms of like it's the everything about that story was very grounded and dark and you know it wasn't the same as your bright out you know out in the sun superheroes this is something very different so it's almost like it was kind of the perfect book if you're ever going to do spider-man it almost feels like the exact spider-man story you'd be doing that's that's cool thanks um i think that yeah i mean they were always willing to look at me on a book that would that fit my style that way there just weren't that many of them Hmm. and at the times that i did do superhero stuff that was more of the big stuff um i really felt inadequate at the, at the task. Like, I did that one issue of, uh, God, I can't remember what book it was, where, um, God, I remember having to draw Asgard hmm. uh, at one point, and I just, Dr. Doom was in it, and Asgard, and stuff like that, and I was just like, oh my God, this is not me. This is not stuff that I can draw. And it was, it was discouraging. Oh, really? It was discouraging to find that I had such a huge, huge, huge hole in my abilities that kind of make up all of comics. <laughs> the vast majority of comics in America, at least at the time, like if you wanted to make money, that was the stuff you had to draw. Hmm. And it's just not something I'm good at. You know, I'm definitely coming more from an Alex Toth side of things than a Jack Kirby side of things. Mm-hmm. So what... I mean, so I, I want to touch lightly on the kind of the journey to image, but uh, and then we can talk about it in on a future episode and we can just go really deep into Lazarus. But I'm just curious, okay. what what was the original conversation with, with Greg or how did, how did creator own an image really come into focus? Um, and obviously it kind of seems like a natural kind of ending point that, you know, kind of Marvel, your time Marvel kind of ends, but then how does the image kind of come into play? I want to say that we had some peers who were starting to do stuff in Image. Um, and Image was starting to do, you know, things with Brian Wood. And I think Ed had maybe started doing a book or two there. And, um, you know, word was kind of trickling out among, you know, guys who were, I guess, you know, had been been in the salt mines at Marvel and DC for a while, that it's like, you can make Marvel DC page rates doing creator-owned stuff at Image. And it was kind of like, wow, really? And um, so, you know, I just remember, Greg came, came through Dallas visiting, and at, that night at dinner, well, I guess, you know, actually we had been talking about doing... Um, he'd already come up with the idea and started writing Black Magic and he wanted me to be the artist on Black Magic hmm. and we had been shopping it around and not finding a deal we were happy with and so one night at dinner um, 
had described, he's like, I got this thing I've been thinking about. And he described the opening scene of Lazarus to me. And I was like, it was again, it was like Gotham Central. I was like, that's the book I want to draw. That's it. That's it right there. And, um, and it was real quick after that. But I mean, we had already heard about the, what was going on in Image at the time. And we're excited about it. And um, they were equally as excited to have us. So it was easy. And then, you know, since then, I've become passionate about the idea of creative rights. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I I don't feel like I ever want to go back to Marvel or DC because I don't want to do work for people who they're the ones making the money off of my work. Mm-hmm. And they're not doing shit. <laughs> You know, I mean, they aren't. They're selling advertising and shit. They're, what? They're not doing shit. Why should they make money off of me? Um, I'm kind of a socialist that way, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> well, I'm not kind of a socialist. I am a socialist. But they, you know, it just, it became really important to me that we, uh, we seize the means of production and that we, we own the copyrights to everything. That if there's going to be a movie, we are going to be the ones who benefit from it. It kind of started when, we did Gotham Central, I can bring it back around to Gotham Central by saying, you know, one of the things they asked me to do was to redesign Mr. Freeze. Because the Mr. Freeze design they had at the time was awful. It was based on the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger in hmm. it. And, um, so they asked me to redesign Mr. Freeze. And at the time, Nick Darrington was just getting started in comics and lived near me. And... Nick had done some sketches of this Mr. Freeze looking character in like a looked like a scuba outfit. And I was like, that's pretty cool. I said, do you mind if I use some of that? I said, well, you know, if they pay me for the design, I'll pay you. And he was like, yeah, go ahead. And so that's what we did. Uh, you know, did this new design on Mr. Freeze. And sure as shit, you know, they were making toys. That's what they used for the Mr. Freeze design for a little while. And, you know, nobody ever even said thank you. <laughs> you know, and I was just like, this is kind of stupid. You know, why, why are we doing this? You know, this is, at the time, it was the only way to make a living doing comics was to sell yourself that way. Um, and I'm really grateful that now it's more a case of you go to Marvel and DC to learn, learn the ropes and to build up your chops so that then you can go make, you know, your creator-owned comic and make real money and, and actually own the thing that you produce, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, like, yeah, I, I just, I, I just, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to do work for other people. I, I watch, I look at the way they treat Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons over Watchmen, and it's just disgusting. Um, it's just absolutely disgusting. They did, they did, they did nothing to create those characters in that world, and they just stole it from, from you know, maybe their contract said that that was work for hire and that DC was going to own it. But I don't care what the contract says. We all know morally right. For sure. Do you think, I mean, prior to your kind of journey into being, um, you know, working in creator-owned books, do you think that that kind of activism towards creative rights would have ended up coming out the same way for you personally in terms of your views on it and how you feel about it? Or, like, obviously it sounds like your experiences with Gotham Central obviously informed a lot of that as well. But, you know, do you think finally having a, you know, kind of a a piece of the pie that you own and control with Greg, do you think that was kind of the the tipping point for you in terms of how you felt about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
to see to see like when the first royalties came in and to see the numbers that we were selling and say, my God, we're selling like a tenth of what you know we might have sold on you know this book or that book, and yet we're making so much more money, and we could have been doing this all along. And then not that money's that important. It's just that it, it started to feel like somebody else was taking food out of my kid's mouth. Hmm. You know, it, it was like, I, why am I doing this? Why am I letting them do this to me? You know, I, I kind of feel like that about any creator. It's like, don't, don't let them do that to you. You've got something that they don't have. And don't sell yourself short. Don't, don't let them pay you the pittance that they're paying you. Don't let them take all your good ideas. You know, those, those good ideas are nuggets of gold, and and you deserve all the credit and all the rewards that comes from those. You know, um, that's that's what you that that that's your that's your thing. That's what you can do. Don't don't undersell yourself by letting somebody else make all the money off of what you're doing. You know, for sure. You know, if if it's it's really important to me it's it's just it's become more important as i've gotten older life life is too short to let that happen absolutely well I, you know michael i think that's probably the the best spot to to end and then when we do when we do reconvene again, again, we'll, we'll get much more deeper into Lazarus and what that has meant for you. Um, obviously, both what it's meant for your, you know, your life, because now it's, you know, it's this thing that you own and what with Greg and it's done really well, obviously. Um, and we'll also get into kind of the artistic side and what it's been like to develop that world and go on that journey with uh, with you and Greg. Okay, perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for uh, taking so much of your time. It's been an hour and a half, and I think before we started recording, I was like, "Yeah, yeah, we'll try for an hour." And we, we, we yeah, we, I know. I, I said an hour, but I, I know I always go on too long. <laughs> my my wife has come to the point where when I tell her how long a podcast is, I think she adds like an hour. She's like, "Yeah, yeah, whatever." <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I yeah. It's funny because on my Skype, like I think the last thing I did was another podcast, and I looked and I thought the, the call was like two and a half hours long, and I was like, "Yeah." I didn't want to scare you. <laughs> no, no. I mean, not, not, as I said beforehand, off mic, but, uh, you know, nothing could scare me more than Chip Sidarsky in my house for three hours, so. <laughs> okay. I don't actually know Chip personally, but that might scare me as well. <laughs> Anyways, well, From everything I've heard. Thank, thank, thank you so much. And again, we will try to have you back soon, and we'll, we'll get uh, a lot deeper into Lazarus. That sounds fun, man. I can't wait. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Talk to you later, then.